Great morning, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Graydon Cellini of the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University, class of 85. My great pleasure to be back with you again today. The purpose of our show, Thank God for Monday, is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times. Motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as to how to utilize information we provide today. Take full accountability for the decisions you make and the resulting outcome. Now, one of the goals of our show, thank God for Monday, is to introduce role models. Role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. This is a very special time, the month of September. When we look back at the horrific events of September 11, 2001, and the impact they have had on the world and our workplace. As such, we are honored today to have not only one, but two very, very special guests with us. Their names are Dr. Christina John Antonio and Dr. Amy Hurley Hansen. Dr. Christina and Dr. Amy are educators at Chapman University in California. Additionally, they have done extensive research and writing on the impact of September 11, 2001 in the workplace. Great morning and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Dr. Christina and Dr. Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank uh, you. The honor is definitely all ours, certainly. Kindly tell uh, the listeners from what city and state you are speaking from this morning. Maybe, Dr. Amy, you can start us there, please. Okay. I'm speaking from Huntington Beach, California. Dr. Christina? I'm in Tustin Ranch, California, a few miles away. You have just made this host and the listeners very, very jealous. <laughs> they don't call it the best host for nothing, that's for sure. Sadly, we've only got 30 minutes. We could talk for hours about your incredible lives or your great work as uh, people who uh, work in higher institutions, uh, educators, et cetera, et cetera, and all this wonderful research that you've done. But before we dive into the research, Kindly share with the listeners and me just a little bit about yourselves. Dr. Amy, would you start us off, please? Sure. Um, I was born in Connecticut, so close to where you are now. Um, <laughs> I went to undergraduate at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And then after that, I moved to New York City. I lived there for 11 years. I got my PhD at New York University, then got a job at the Catholic University of America in DC, lived there for three years and came to Chapman 26 years ago. Wow, amazing. Dr. Christina? I was born in Washington, DC. I grew up in Maryland. I went to the University of Maryland for undergrad, MBA, and my PhD. My first job as a professor was at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And I um, came to Chapman 28 years ago, starting my 28th year. Wow. We are so blessed to have people of your ilk. Thank God for Monday with us today. And thanks for getting up so extra early to be with us. 
Let's jump right into the deep end of the pool. Where were each of you September 11, 2001? Dr. Amy? Sure. Um, I was at home in Huntington Beach getting my son ready for kindergarten. And my mother had moved out to California also. And she called us very early. You know, she didn't usually call that early in the morning and said, turn on the TV. We are under attack. Wow. Dr. Christina, how about you? Uh, I was uh, at my parents' house that, that day. My dad happened to be in the hospital. And just as with Amy's mom, my dad called very early and said, something's happened, turn on the television. There's been, um, there's been an attack. And um, both Amy and I actually taught that night. We had classes, but so from early in the morning, then of course we were you know, glued to the television and, and uh, until it was time to go to, to teach. Wow. Now I perceive both of you were in California. Yes. Is that right? Yes. 9-11-2001. So you weren't geographically near really where anyone was killed, not around the corner as we were here in Brooklyn, et cetera. But very curious, what was the impact on both of you of September 11? Dr. Christina, you want to start us there? Sure. Um, well, I, you know, being in, in shock, of course, as, as the rest of the country and world were, um, it, I was still thinking about, you know, going off to, heading off to campus to teach. Uh, Amy and I taught in a Master of Science in Human Resource Management program at Chapman. And so our students were, almost all were working HR managers or HR professionals. And I was, uh, of, we were tr trying to lead discussions about what had happened, asking them if they had colleagues in New York, if, if any of their companies in the West also had uh, branch offices in the East. And um, I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly the content we were supposed to cover that night, but that's, that's mainly what we talked about um, for the class that evening. Wow. Dr. Amy, did you have a similar experience? Yeah. Well, I think it was interesting because one thing is that as we had the whole day to think about it and watch the news, there was a lot of reports that Disneyland was the next target. And we're right next to Disneyland, our school. Oh, so, wow. So it was very nerve wracking. But also, so I lived in Manhattan a long time. So I had friends. It was, you couldn't get anyone on the phone that day. You couldn't get through to anyone to find out you know, what was going on. And um, I had a, my the office building that NYU had for us when we were students went down with the towers and I was actually watched it on TV. So there was a lot of emotions that day and then we went to work. Wow. So even though you physically were not that close here to Manhattan or Washington DC, you were experiencing it very, very emotionally, uh, both of you. Now, if I understand correctly, a few years later, you started researching the effect of September 11 on people's careers. Uh, curious very much, what motivated you to undertake this research? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Chris and I have always been interested in researching people's careers, different groups of people and you know how they do their careers. Um, and we started reading about a lot of people who had um, changed their careers drastically after 9-11. People dropping out of corporate America, wanting to become first responders, nurses, join the military. Um, 
And so I think that started interesting us. And then we started reading about how companies were handling the aftermath. How were they finding where their employees were? And, you know, you know, a lot of stories about companies that were going to take care of the survivors of the, of, you know, people who had passed in the tower. And there was just a real lot of interesting things about companies and careers that we were reading. And we would both come in and talk about the same stories at work and, um, and thought we needed to get started on some research about it. I'm very curious. I'm sure our listeners are as well. Had uh, Christina and Amy collaborated on research prior to this, or was this the two of you said, "Gee, let's 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 start to do some things together." No, we've been working together. Um, so I arrived at Chapman two years before Amy, and then once uh, she arrived, I would say almost immediately because we both had the interest in careers. Um, we started to work together. Uh, very soon, you know, within the first our first semester. So, yeah, it was very natural for us to work together. Yeah, we do all our work together. I, I could sense you're a great team. There's no question about it. And your research and the findings really speak volumes, literally. Speaking of findings, that initial research, what would you say, looking back, were some of the really key findings of that initial work? I think one of the things that we were struck by was the, the role of HR managers and HR departments in helping with this crisis in you know, immediately trying to locate employees, trying to set up supportive resources for them and their families and, and being kind of the center con, um, point of contact for companies and uh, really showing that you know their concern was they were the face of the organization in a lot of ways wow so yeah. a lot of the responsibility do i perceive fell on the, the human resource professionals to try to i don't even want to say be responsible for healing but 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 were they responsible kind of to bring healing and hope back to the organization I think they were, and it was, it was very much, I mean, they were the ones charged with, you know, what do we do? How do we find the employees? Um, you know, how do we get the organization up running again? Everything was really on their shoulders. But what we found is also we were reading, there was no one supporting them. So if you looked on the website of professional societies, these people would be reaching out for help. Like, you know, does anyone have any ideas what we do? We're the ones responsible and we don't have a plan. Wow. Okay. I know there are some organizations, I guess, like SHRM and some exactly. organizations. So this must have been, I can imagine, a very, very difficult time for them, for the profession as a whole, certainly. So it sounds like this is some of the things you found out in your research. We did. Um, and another thing we found that was very, was, you know, when if it's interesting, but the many employees were afraid of being discriminated against because of the nationalities of the terrorists. Um, and they had reasons to be afraid. We saw people being attacked. And, you know, we're seeing it again with COVID, people attacking people that, you know, they believe are from countries that started COVID. And, um, you know, we're seeing that again. And so, you know, the, again, that's the human resources, you know, professionals responsibility, right, to make sure that these people are taken care of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Very, very important role these days, more than ever, no doubt about that. Now, if I understand again correctly, you continue doing this great research 
for several more years. And you alluded to this a little bit before, but let's peel the onion on this because one of the questions I wanna ask, is it really true? Did many people really drastically change their careers as a result of September 11th? Or is this really a bit of a myth, if you will? I think there was, there was initially a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, there were stories, um, a lot in the popular press, you know, talking about people uh, wanting to uh, volunteer with service organizations uh, to make, make career changes, to, to go into the military, to protect the country, to um, become first responders. So that was kind of the initial wave of it. Um, there was some, again, kind of anecdotal that people were rethinking, uh, you know, their corporate careers and wanting to kind of readjust their work-life balance. So that's part, some of that information, so, uh, some of that evidence was what spurred us to be, to look into this and see, was it happening? Were we finding this among uh, managers as well? I'm very curious, not only what you said about the, uh, the career, et cetera, et cetera piece, but the work-life balance, Christina. Can you or uh, Dr. Amy share a little bit more? I'm very, very curious how September 11, 2001 may have impacted people's thoughts, attitudes regarding a work-life balance there. Well, interesting, in our research, we actually, you know, we would find the anecdotal evidence but we did not find statistically that people actually were changing their lives and becoming more concerned about work-life balance. Wow, okay. And I think we see it happening right now again with COVID that people are saying that people want more work-life balance, they wanna stay home, they don't wanna work late. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see in the coming years, research if that turns out to be true. Mm. And there's, and there's two things that we, we do have to remember, like when we did the 10 year follow up on the 10 year anniversary, time had passed. So you're also asking people to re recall, you know, what they felt at the time and things like that. So, so we have to consider that because um, as we all know, making a dramatic career change takes some planning and some, you know, practical logistical things you have to think about. Um, so that's one. The other thing is um, virtually all of our, our, our sample was from the West Coast. You know, since obviously we're at the West Coast, we had connections with local uh, SHRM members and um, professionals in human resource association. So we also had West Coast individuals reflecting as well. So we don't know, but there, there, that could also be an ex a bit of an explanation for that's, yeah, very, that's very interesting. So the thought is that maybe if there were more East Coast people involved in your research, uh, there might have been slightly different results there. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Would you like to touch upon one or two more key findings from some of the subsequent research uh, that you were doing? I think one, one thing we found, we tried, we did a couple of surveys where we compared like companies that had been directly affected versus those that hadn't. And we looked at West Coast versus East Coast companies in that study. And one thing that we found was that um, West Coast companies were, according to their employees, responding faster to improving their crisis response plans than East Coast companies were. 
Boy, that's a shock to me. Uh, that's what we thought. But that's what the, how the employees saw it, that the East Coast companies did not feel they were um, responding, you know, quickly enough or as fast as people on the um, West Coast did. Wow. Well, now, maybe this is an unfair question, but if we can fast forward to 2022, have you seen, and I don't know if you've delved into this at all, have you seen organizations make very significant changes in how they prepare for disasters such as September 11th? I don't, and I think we almost almost see a sort of a, a you know sort of a complacency about um, because you remember when when September 11 happened, then we had Hurricane Katrina right away, and there was a lot of discussion about crisis response planning and you know security that was going to be in place, and you know it was very hard to get in anywhere, and you just see that sort of relaxing much more now, that um, you know a little complacent going on. Boy, that's very very interesting. Uh, and there was more for, sorry, for um, larger companies were viewed as, as you would expect, as, as doing more crisis response planning, um, even succession planning, things like that. But with your smaller mm -hmm. companies, you know, that wouldn't have had as many resources, that there wasn't as much emphasis on that, or maybe because it's smaller, they could more easily keep track of each other, things like that. But um, we did see organizational size factor yeah. in as well. I could see where that would matter, certainly. And we had a, a model we developed to help because we think one thing that's important with crisis response plans is to have a short term. What do we do immediately? But then how do we think keeps getting you know, going? So we need the short term and the long term. And so we had this HR safety and respect acronym model that we that, that you can read in our, one of our articles. Oh, that, that's fascinating. Is there another suggestion you might have to help organizations be more proactive in 2022, you know, in this regard, certainly? Anything else come to mind? I would say that, that the companies, individuals in their companies, they need to get over that sort of um, kind of fear, fear of looking into this, these kinds of issues. And, you know, we don't want to think about it, right? I mean, we don't want to think about, um, we don't want to think about earthquakes here in California. We don't want to think about, you know, um, the floods that we're seeing now across the country. You know, we're, we, we have to kind of get over that um, hesitancy to directly say, something could happen. I mean, in the workplace, right? I mean, it's, it's always after the fact when there's an episode of workplace violence or a shooting, then afterwards, it's like, we, we, should, we should do more to make sure people are trained and learn what to do in case there's an active shooting situation. But it's hard to, you know, to keep thinking about that all the time, but, but that's the kind of contingency planning, crisis planning that, that needs to come to the forefront as well. Yeah. And I think like in our industry, you know, in institutions that this, the school shooting, the active shooting training Chris was talking about um, a few, you know, three or four or five years ago, I, my students would come into college. The freshmen would have had, had high school active shooting training. Last couple of years when I asked them, they, they don't have it anymore. So. Wow. Well, that's fascinating, certainly. And it's interesting because, uh, I had a 30 year career in pharmaceuticals before becoming a Franciscan brother. And toward the end, I was doing quasi HR work. I was collaborating very closely with the HR uh, group. And 
it's always much more fun to plan the company picnic, <laughs> softball games, and this and that. I could see where both of you are coming from. This is not fun work to do, but yeah. it's very necessary work. Yeah. Not, no question about yeah. it. So, now, of course, due to the pandemic in particular, there has been a very significant shift to a hybrid workplace. Has this shift impacted the importance of really knowing where their employees are? How does this all work, please? Well, Amy and I were talking about this a little bit today, and uh, there's kind of a, a positive and a negative side. I mean, the positive side is you don't have a large group of employees located in one central location. So that's you know a bit of an advantage. The negative, of course, is you, you, you don't really know exactly where everyone is, you know, like, if, are, are they in their home office? Are they at the local coffee shop? Are they across town? Are they across the country? And so, um, you know, the ability to kind of keep track of folks becomes challenging, even, even with hybrid, there's an aspect to it, I think. Yeah. I can empathize with that because I'm here at St. Francis College in administrative and a part-time faculty role. And sometimes we teach on the Zoom and other times we're in person. I'm not sure if I really let anybody know where I am at any point in time. Well, that's so, very so God forbid if there was a disaster, you know, how would they know if I was involved or not? No question of that. Uh, we've got about nine more minutes. And I think this is really a good time just to... Uh, shift gears just a bit, because in addition to this fantastic research you've done about 9-11, you've also done some very important research on autism in the workplace. I don't know what's going out on the West Coast there, but here, sadly, autism more and more and more is becoming prevalent for people on the East Coast. I'm very curious, what motivated you to do this, and, and when does this research actually start? So I have a close family member with autism, so it was very personal uh -huh. to me. And um, I've always been involved with that community, which means Chris also has been. And um, so we had always talked about the careers of people with autism. And I think we see the same thing here. I mean, when, when I f first started hearing about autism, you know, you're thinking Rain Man and, you know, really didn't know anybody. And now you, every time you talk to them, oh, my nephew has autism, my, you know, my son has autism. It's much more prevalent. Um, so we had always talked about studying because we were always in different groups of careers. And then this was just another group of people that we could look at the careers or non-careers um, to look at. And at the same time, we also started seeing these big tech companies, some of them like Google, starting programs to specifically hire people with autism. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It was really, really wonderful. Tell us more, maybe uh, Dr. Christine, you can share with us a little bit more and then maybe Dr. Amy, if you'd like, about this great research. Well, what's it all about? Well, we, we started by, we really started to look at um, what were the needs of both individuals with autism and their family members or um, other close caregivers in terms of their transition basically from high school into college. And so, or, or after high school, maybe college or community college or work, work programs or going into the workplace. And, um, and in part, that age group was of interest to us, of course, because we teach college age students. And as we were seeing more students disclosing to us, 
that they had um, different neurodiverse diagnoses um, that we were kind of intrigued by this to see, you know, how do we help meet their needs in the classroom and then their, their job search needs because we were very aware of the um, dis big disparities, large disparities in employment and um, among individuals with autism versus those without autism. Wow. So that became an interest as well. So we, so we started really with looking at the, the, the perceived needs for support for individuals who were of age to go into the workforce and what they might need to help support them, which ties into then an interest in HR, right? Because it would be HR, um, they might be interacting with HR logically in terms of recruiting and interviewing and things like that. Wow, that is fabulous, fabulous work. Now, was there, I'm sure there was a lot of wonderful takeaways, but was there one really most important takeaway that you think you want people to take from this great research that you've done? Well, I think what's, you know, what's happening is that we, this research is a sort of a, for us, it's a thing we are really like trying to change the way and make sure that people with autism can be hired and help organizations learn how to hire them. So our research has really gone on that way. And I think what, what people really need to know, I mean, we have a shortage of job applicants right now. Um, is that you know people with autism can take that people don't see them as being able to have careers and as a country you know autism has taken a great toll in our society psychologically but financially we spend an enormous billions and billions of dollars on supporting unemployed people with autism um, and so I think for for me what I see on this and I I think Chris would agree with me is that you know people on the spectrum they can be self sufficient members of society if we give them a chance. There's a lot of programs out there to help organizations make these hiring successful. Um, an initial research is showing companies hiring neurodiverse individuals are reporting higher earnings, higher performance from them. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the type of thing we want to get out there and publish. That's so awesome. Now, do I understand that you've actually published a book uh, in this area? We actually have three books. Three books. Yes. Wow, this is great. Uh, where can people find the, the uh, on Amazon or is there a different website or something where people can go find these? They are on Amazon. Um, uh, we, the, the first one is uh, talk, talks about transition and, and autism in, in the workplace and the transition needs of young adults with autism um, that we, um, we call this whole generational cohort of young adults who will who are poised to go into the workforce. And there's a lot of them coming. There's a lot of these young adults that are ready. So we call them Generation A. Um, and uh, so that's kind of, that was our, the first book that we did. And as a result of that book, uh, Amy and I were invited to be book series editors um, so that then we, um, look for other authors uh, who are interested in pursuing topics on neurodiversity in the workplace. And so we um, have edited two books of research um, as well. So that's that's been what we've been doing the last couple of years and what we'll wow. continue to do. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible, certainly. So listeners, take full advantage. Uh, go out and find these books by Dr. Christine and Dr. Amy. And uh, in particular, uh, if you know someone who has autism, 
share it with their parents or share it with them. And to, uh, because we need more people with autism to be able to have that equal opportunity, to be able to have careers that are fulfilling and meaningful for them, just like all of us would want to have uh, who you know, don't have autism. So indeed, this is something to take full advantage of. You both have accomplished so much. It's just amazing. And again, we could spend hours more talking about your incredible accomplishments. Uh, what's next, though? Maybe it's an unfair question, but I got to ask it. Is there another book on the way or another area that you're thinking of delving into some research? Well, we are very interested um, in this new post-COVID workplace. What's What are going to be the effects in the workplace? But we'll also continue the research on autism. Wow. The post-COVID workplace, is it just the fact that the pandemic was something that was so historic and out of the ordinary or what's motivating you in this area? I think that, I think what we're seeing is, is maybe a bit of a parallel again with, with the effects, the attacks of, of 9-11 is, you know, questioning um, the role of work in people's lives, spending time with family, what is really important to individuals, um, how hard they want to work. You probably, uh, your listeners have probably been seeing a lot of attention on something called quiet quitting right now. Yes. I'll just do the minimum and that's it. And I was telling my students this week, that that's a fancy new term for something we've been studying in management for years, job engagement, job involvement, organizational commitment. But, you know, that's significant. It's, it, one of my students said something so insightful. He said, if, if people start quiet quitting, how will we be competitive as, a, as American, the American workforce? How will we be competitive on a global scale? We need to, we can't just slack off. And I, I was really impressed with his, you know, this young man's insight that he said about the, the topic. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry to say we're just about out of time, but I'm sure our loyal listeners may want to contact the interview for some more nuggets. How can they best contact uh, Dr. Amy and Dr. Christina? Dr. Amy, start us off, please. Well, I think it's just easiest to go to the Chapman University website, chapman.edu, and you can look us up and it has our, our emails or LinkedIn and Facebook for both of us. Terrific. So just at the Chapman University website, yep. listeners, no excuse. Uh, Dr. Amy, Dr. Christina, very, very open to continuing the dialogue with you. Yes. So indeed, uh, please, please do that. Dr. Christina, Dr. Amy, we can't thank you enough for gracing us on Thank God for Monday today. Uh, we've been enlightened, we've been inspired, inspired about this area of what are we doing to respond to tragedy, to horrific events, but also in this area of autism. So uh, great Franciscan research, you're doing both of these areas. We wish you continued joy and success and all your publishing, or your research, and uh, uh, just thank you getting up extra early to be here with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Listeners, guess what? We're out of time. Greg saying our hope and prayer is that when you wake up on Monday morning, just like Amy and Christina do, you'll say, thank God for Monday. Until next week for another episode of Thank God for Monday. Have a great week, everyone.